All right, good morning. Great to uh, be with you this morning. My name is Bryce. I'm the pastor here uh, at Resurrection OC. Uh, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11. Um, it's great to be back with you this morning. I uh, have not been uh, preaching the last uh, two Sundays. So I've been preaching in three weeks, so I prepared three weeks worth of material for you this morning. Um, <laughs> but uh, p- part of what the, that's allowed me to do over the last uh, couple of weeks is spend some more time focusing this, uh, on, on this process that we've been in, a, in, a, a, in as a church of just renewal and where, where are we and what is God calling us to next. And one of the things we've discovered uh, over the last few months is that we haven't done a, a great job as a church um, kind of helping our whole congregation engage in the mission of what it means to be a church together in South Orange County. And so I plan to do something different for the second half of, uh, of the summer uh, in terms of the sermon series. And um, just part of this process, I think, was God prompting me to, to ship course. And so this morning we're going to begin uh, a five-part series looking at the life of Abraham and what does it mean to, to walk by faith So if you would um, stand with me, and we're going to read this first section of the life of Abraham. We're going to read Genesis chapter 11, starting at verse 27, and then we'll read into verse uh, chapter 12. Let's hear God's word together this morning. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans, and Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sari, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, uh, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now Sari was barren, she had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sari, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had acquired, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. And so he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. And from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord, and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Oh God, would you speak to us? 
Holy Spirit, would you be present in our midst by the power of your word. Help us to see Jesus more clearly. We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated, please. Several months ago, I was, uh, was going for a run. Uh, one of the things I've started doing in the last year or so is going for a run in kind of these uh, hill trails that surround Ladera Ranch. And I, I don't know if you remember this. Uh, it's hard to remember now, but remember how it rained for like six months this winter? And so for a long time, it was too muddy to run on these dirt trails. And, um, and uh, it was like ice skating once I tried to run, and it was just so muddy. But uh, by April, it had dried out, and I went for a run for the first time in a couple of months. And I was running up this hill, and I came around the corner, and I saw a, 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 just a view that kind of almost knocked me off my feet. And against the backdrop of a dark blue sky, the kind of brush had grown overhead green and the mustard seed was in full bloom and it was just stunning and beautiful and amazing. That was in April. About two weeks ago I went for a run on the same trail and all of that greenery and yellow mustard seed uh, is brown and it's dry and it's dusty and it's falling over and it just looks like death. Um, and it, it, it's ugly. Uh, except in the middle of these kind of fields of brown, there are these bright pops of color. Uh, there are these thistles blooming, and there are uh, bright pops of purple and, uh, and green. Um, and as I saw this a week or two ago, it occurred to me that, um, that that's kind of a picture of what life is like. And I think especially what the Christian life looks like, everything flourishes when the conditions are right. You know, everything's green when it's been raining for months. But it takes a certain kind of organism and a certain kind of life to flourish in the midst of the brown, the dry, the dust. Uh, these thistles, these pops of color, uh, they're beautiful, and yet, and I kind of like this, uh, I mean, if you picked a thistle, it might bite back. You know, they're, they're, they're tough. There's a tenacity to the kind of life uh, that exhibits beauty in the midst of, uh, well, that, that displays beauty despite our circumstances. Um, you know, when, when the economy is going well, when your kids obey, when you're on vacation, like, it's easy to be happy and kind and generous. It's easy to be generous when, every, when the economy is going well because nobody needs you to be generous because everybody's doing well, <laughs> right? But uh, when your kids won't obey and you're stuck in a kitchen that you'd love to remodel but all you can do is afford to replace the dishwasher, which I think is the least fun purchase you ever have to make. Uh, <laughs> and it's hard, it's hard to be joyful, right? It's hard to be kind, it's hard to be generous. A rising tide lifts all ships, but what does it look like to flourish um, when times aren't great? That is what we see in the life of Abraham. Uh, Romans chapter 4 says that Abraham is the father of all the faithful. You know, three major world religions tie their origins to Abraham. Uh, so you really can't, you know, the majority of people on the planet, uh, their faith originates with Abraham. So you can't really understand life in this world without understanding Abraham. 
Uh, Romans 4 says, Abraham is the father of us all. Hebrews 11 summarizes the life of Abraham as living a life of faith. So I've got to confess to you, I hate the word faith because I think that uh, we, we, we tend to contrast like faith, faith with science, faith with reason. Uh, that's not what faith in the Bible means. Living a life of faith doesn't mean basing your life on a lark. Living a life of faith in the God of Abraham means learning to thrive not just when times are good, but when times are bad. What does it look like to not ride the ups and downs of life's, life's circumstances? How do we live with beauty and tenacity in a world of brown, of dry dustiness? Over the next five weeks, I want to show you God's answer to that question to the life of Abraham. That uh, living a life of faith means answering the call. So this morning, the first thing we're going to see uh, is answering the call to leave. And then next week, we're going to talk about answering the call to remain. And then on, I think, uh, August 11th, Trevor's going to talk about um, having proper confidence. What does it look like to have appropriate confidence in God? And then we're going to talk about uh, the following week, answering the call to wait. And then finally, answering the call to trust So today, walking by faith, we see through the life of Abraham means hearing the call of God on your life and answering the call by leaving, by going, by engaging in the mission that God has set before his people. So what does that look like? Well, the first thing that you've got to see in this passage is that you've got to answer the call. You've got to answer the call. Um, I began reading the end of chapter 11 because... I mean, as I was reading this, like, were you thinking, who are these people? Terah and Nahor and Haran, and what are they? What are we? T-? And that's kind of the point of that passage. Like, uh, in Genesis 11, the human race is not heading in a good direction. Uh, they've tried to build this tower of significance and meaning for themselves at Babel, and uh, that didn't go well. And uh, God frustrates their effort, and the human race is scattered. And uh, what's happening here is that the human race is kind of heading into this dark cul-de-sac of history. And there's all these people and names, and it's just chaos. And I know that it can feel a little bit to some of us like we are in this moment where our culture seems to be changing. And, uh, and maybe it feels like ah, things are getting worse. I don't know. They're definitely different. Um, I don't know if I like the direction that, uh, that our culture is heading. And the, and the temptation is to think, oh gosh, like it's never been this bad before. But um, I love what Sam said, you know, was the dismal science predicted that the world was going to end in the 17, 1700s? Is that what he said? Yes. Uh, like there's a sense in which the human race is always on the brink of disaster. Like we are always one generation away from extinction. <laughs> That's where, that's where faith lives and thrives, and, and it's in the middle of one of those times that, uh, that God comes, and out of all the people on the planet, out of all of the human race, he makes himself known to Abram, or Abraham. It says Abram in this passage, but God's going to change his name to Abraham, so don't let that confuse you. And God comes to this one man out of all of the people on the planet and says, Abraham, I'm going to be your God, and I'm going to... I want you to know me, and I'm going to know you, and I will provide for you and protect you. And I'm going to give you a family, and I'm going to make your name great, and you are going to be a legend. You are going to live a big and a full life. And we tend to think that back in the day, everybody was super religious. And so, of course, Abraham was just really eager to read divine blessing into his plans. And... um, 
but everybody was religious back then, and uh, we're not so much religious people. Like, we're spiritual people, but we're not religious. And so we're more skeptical about the idea that God would come and call Abraham, or that God would come and call us. But listen, that idea that people back then were religious and believing, and today we know better, is just modern hubris. And you see that actually in this passage, because... Abraham's father's name was Terah. Now, I know you don't know what that means, but the name Terah means moon. And they came from this city called Ur of the Chaldeans. And Ur of the Chaldeans was known to be a center of worship of the moon. And then several hundred years later in Joshua 24, hundreds and hundreds of years later, Joshua 24, there's a, there's a verse in Joshua 24 that says, God says this, Long ago your ancestors, including Terah and Abram, or Abraham and Nahor, they lived beyond the Euphrates River and they worshipped other gods. So what's the point? Do you see, like, this is not this good, like, church-going, Bible-believing, God-fearing family. They're, like, they're, they're pagans. They're poly... They're, like, think of it like this. They're, this is a hippie family. They're worshipping the moon. They believe that there's, yeah, there's something out there. There's... We believe that we're spiritual. We believe there's something out there. We don't really know what it is. We're not so arrogant to claim that we know God. And it's to this family that God comes and says, Abram, I'm going to make myself known to you. Here's the point. God can come into the midst of your life. He can call you. He can make himself known to you. God comes to Abraham and says, I'm making myself known to you. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless others through you. I'm going to provide for you, and I'm going to take care of you. And so I know that for many people in our culture today, that for, for a Christian to say, I know God, sounds arrogant. And I get that. I mean, I'm, I'm a person who <laughs> would presume to stand up and explain what God says to you. So, I mean, there's a certain amount of arrogance in that, right? <laughs> But here's the question we need to ask. Is it possible is it, is it possible that God could make himself known to you? Is it possible that as you're just being a spiritual but not religious person, that God could kind of grab you by the scruff of your, of your neck and say, we're going to know each other. I'm going to get to know you. You're going to get to know me. I will go first. Don't worry. We're going to make this happen. Will we allow the possibility that if there really is a God, he is wise enough to make himself known to human beings? Because that's what we see in the life of Abraham. You know, he's the son of this Middle Eastern sheikh. They're like driving around in the desert in their black Mercedes, doing their own thing. No thought of God in the world. And God shows up, bam, and says, Abraham, I'm going to make myself known to you. He interrupts his life and his plan. And that's what the call of God looks like. And I think that this is the key to living a life that flourishes despite our circumstances. The question is, do you know God? Do you know who he is? Because without knowing him, you just all you can do is ride the waves as they, as they toss you up and down. And living a life of faith means knowing who God is and keeping our eyes on him and his promises despite, uh, despite our circumstances. Do you know who God is? I know... In our world, we tend to think that before we can answer that question, the first task would be to discover ourselves. You know, you have to. Uh, I think you have to. You have to find out who you really are by going to Thailand or something. Graduate college and go to Thailand to discover who you really are. Um, a long time ago, John Calvin, he said this: 
all wisdom consists almost entirely of two things, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. But these two are so connected that it is not easy to determine which of the two proceeds and gives birth to the other. He's saying, we have to know God and we have to know ourselves, but they are so intricately linked that you can't say that you know God without knowing yourself and you can't say that you really know yourself without knowing God. In order to know yourself, you have to know God. Everyone thrives when times are good. But a rising tide lifts all boats. What does it take to thrive and live a life of beauty when things aren't going your way? Okay. So what would you say if you're here and you say, well, I, how do I know God? Well, if you're here and you, and you say, I don't know if I know God, all you have to do is ask. All you have to do is ask. In John 6, Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The problem, I think, in our time is that in the name of being open-minded, many of us sort of refuse to be open-minded about the possibility that God can make himself known to us. If you are wanting to know God, if you haven't heard him call you, just ask, cry out to him, and he will answer you. Look at Abraham. He's not looking for God. He's not, um, he's, he's not searching for God. He's just doing his own thing. He's not thinking about God at all, and yet God shows up. God doesn't call Abraham because he's so good or because he's earned it. He calls God, uh, God calls Abraham just because he's God and he's gracious. And yet, Abraham is not so bad. None of us are so bad that the call of God cannot transform us either. The call of God is sheer grace. We don't deserve it, and yet we cannot deny it. So the first thing we have to see in this passage is, is we have to respond to the call of God. I have to respond to the call of God. Okay. The second thing that I want you to see in this passage uh, is actually the first thing God says in this passage. Okay, we have to respond to the call of God. That in order to live a life of faith, it requires not just answering the call of God, but leaving our home for kingdom vocation. We have to leave our home for kingdom vocation. Verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go, go from your country and your kindred, your family, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And then God says in verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will, uh, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God calls Abraham and makes, makes himself known to Abraham, and immediately, actually before he even says who he is, he says, Abraham, I want you to leave. I want you to go. I'm, send, I'm, cons, I'm conscripting you into my kingdom plan on earth, and I'm sending you out on mission. And listen, if this was the only place in the Bible that we saw something like this, we would say, well, Abraham's a unique guy. You know, he's the father of, of the faith, so of course God sent him on this mission. But this is the consistent pattern throughout the Bible. Um, you know, God makes himself known to Moses and says immediately, I'm sending you back to Pharaoh. God calls Isaiah and says, I'm sending you out on a mission. The disciples, Jesus uh, calls the disciples and says, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Um, Jesus says, uh, like, I mean, you can put it like this. Every person, I mean, think of it, Paul, Timothy, Silas, every person in the, name, in the Bible whose name you remember meets God, and God says immediately, I want you to go. I'm sending you out as an agent of my kingdom on mission. The last thing that Jesus said before he physically left earth was, as you go, meaning whatever you do, 
I want you to go out into the world making disciples. To be called is to be sent. To know God is to be enlisted in his mission of kingdom expansion. So how do we respond to that? Typically, I think we respond to that by saying, when God blesses me, I will go. And just a little bit more. (laughs) God, when you put 25% more into my bank account, then I will be prepared to engage in your mission. Uh, God, when you fulfill uh, this career goal, this family, whatever it is, then I will be ready. Then I will leave. Uh, But God says to Abram, he says to us, go, I'm sending you out. Leave your country, leave your family. What is he saying? Uh, you know, imagine Abraham, Abraham leaving, and there's no Skype. He was not going to Skype or FaceTime his family again. He's leaving his social network. He's leaving his safety net. He's leaving his financial security. God's saying, leave your a little bit more and go to the place that I'm going to show you because I've got a plan for you, and I'm going to bless you. We can't say, I will go once God blesses us because the going is part of the blessing. The going is part of the blessing. Don't say, I will go when God blesses me. Say, I will go because that is part of the blessing. Um, Two things in this passage show us just how radical, how radical the the call of God is to leave. Um, What does it look like? In verse 1, uh, it says, if you're looking at a you know, modern English translation, it says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, go, to your, uh, go from your, your country and your kindred. But if you were looking at the old King James, it actually says, get thee out. Um, there's an extra word in there. It's not just go, it's you go, or go yourself. And um, what's happening is that in at the end of verse or end of chapter eleven, um, they're already on their way to Canaan. They're already on their way to the promised land. The whole family of Terah and his sons and grandsons, they're all on their way. And it says then they get to Haran and they stopped. And um, they're halfway there. They're on their way. Um, and it's like God's coming to Abraham and saying, Abraham, uh, I told you to go to Canaan. And Abraham is saying, yeah, we made it halfway. But, like, you know how it is. Like, the guys are happy here. Uh, they're, they're, they're pretty content. And uh, they're just not going to go any further. And God says, then you go. Get thee out. Go yourself. Uh, the radical nature of the call of God is that we've got to leave when nobody else is going to leave. What he's saying is that once you've heard the gracious call of God, he's called you to himself, he's enlisted you in his mission, and he's sending you out. And so, I mean, maybe one way to say this is something like this. Like, what do you want from me, man? Like, I'm a church. It's not enough just to say, like, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a person who goes to church regularly. God is sending you out into his world on mission. But the other thing, you've got to hold this together, that God says... In verse 1, see how radical this call is. is uh, he says to Abraham, go to the place that I will show you. <laughs> Abraham, I want you to leave. Okay, where should I go? I'll tell you later. <laughs> Just go. He doesn't give him the directions. He doesn't give him the, you know, send him, drop a pin on his iPhone and just follow the pin. Just go, and I will show you eventually the place that you're going. 
Um, what does that mean? What it means is this. It's not, I will go, uh, God, as long as you tell me exactly what I need to prepare for ahead of time. Because, God, I want to, I want to, I got to weigh the pros and the cons. Like, is this really what you're calling me to? Um, I can't, I can't sit around and, uh, and evaluate the plan of God before I decide whether or not I will engage in it. Why not? Because if I do that, I'm still in control. I'm still in control. We cannot say, God, I'll be happy to go as long as it makes sense to me. Um, do you know who the people are that obey the parts of the Bible that they like and disagree with the rest? It's every single person on the planet, right? Like every person on the planet is obeying some of the Bible and ignoring the parts they don't like. To be a Christian is to say, God, you are God in my life. I'm no longer God in my life. And so whatever I discern is your will, I'm going to follow. I'm going to go. Being a Christian means there's a higher authority in your life. And the goal of your life is no longer your stability or your contentment or your happiness. Uh, It is the advancement of the kingdom of God. It is glorifying God and enjoying him forever. Going wherever he leads us as he enlists us into his project of kingdom expansion. Okay, that's the radical nature of the call, but what does it look like? Practically speaking, like, are you saying that I've got to sell my house and be willing to move somewhere, or I'm going to have to talk to people about Jesus, because I don't, I'm not like a talk to people about Jesus kind of person. <laughs> okay, now the way I said that made it sound like I'm going to say no, right? <laughs> Can we just acknowledge that actually it might mean selling your house and moving somewhere else? Um, But I think for most of us, um, for Abraham, of course, it physically meant moving. But for us, I think that it might not physically mean moving. It means that your life is now caught up in God's plan for his kingdom. And so all that you do is characterized by uh, by the kingdom of God. So there's really two, two commitments I think we have to make in order to live this life of going even though, for us, it might not mean physically moving anywhere else. Uh, Two commitments that we have to make. And the the first commitment is that we've got to uh, embrace our kingdom vocation. We've got to embrace, I don't know, maybe this is just my hobby horse the last month or so, but vocation, okay? We tend to think, uh, what is it that I'm doing with my life? When we meet somebody new, we say, well, what do you do? And, and what we mean by that is, like, what, are, what, is, what is your job? Um, but vocation is not about your job. Um, your job is, is the things that you do. A vocation is uh, the reason that you do the things that you do. And I believe that God gives each Christian a unique vocation that is how we participate in the outworking of the kingdom of God. Or we can say it like this, your vocation is the intersection of your identity with the, with the kingdom of God. And so you may have in your life many different jobs. You may have a couple different careers. Um, but you might only have one vocation. I mean, God might, God might uh, refine your understanding of your vocation. The question that I want to ask is, do you know what that is? Uh, you may be a, uh, a lawyer. You may be a business owner. You may be a stay-at-home parent. You may be a teacher. Uh, in all of the things that you're doing, you're never just doing these things. 
What is the common thread that God has woven through all of them that gives your life meaning and purpose? That is your vocation. That is your vocation. And I want to encourage us as a church to begin, each of us individually, to discern our God-given vocation. Because I believe that is where your identity intersects with the kingdom of God. What does that look like in practice? And it means you don't need to worry so much about things like, how do I let my neighbors, my coworkers know that I'm a Christian? If you are engaged in a vocation where your day in, day out, work, paid and unpaid, is an outworking of the kingdom of God as God has made you an agent of his kingdom, then they're, they're, they're going to know. <laughs> like, it, not because you pray before you eat or you have a bumper sticker on your car or... Or whatever, you know, these, those aren't bad things. But at some point, the way that you conduct yourself is going to raise questions. And people are going to say, why are you the way that you are? And then you're going to kind of stammer and stutter and feel flustered and explain the gospel to them. Because it's the only way to make sense of your life. Do you know how to do that? Do you know what your vocation is? Um... I'm in a community group this week. We're going to unpack that some more. Um, what's your vocation? I, uh, I heard Pastor Tim Keller say this. Um, if you've ever read the Lord of the Rings series, uh, you, you may have noticed that there's a, very, there's a big difference between the, the Hobbit, which is kind of the prequel, and then the actual Lord of the Rings trilogy. And if you're, a, if you're a kid, my kids, I would encourage you, you know, if you're middle school age, start by reading The Hobbit. It's a, it's a kid's book. But if you're an adult, you really got to start by reading uh, The Lord of the Rings, the trilogy. And there, the difference between the two, Tim Keller says, is that The Hobbit is a children's book and it's an adventure. It's a there and back story. I think that's what Bilbo says, actually, uh, it, 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 as he is telling this story. It's a, it's a story of there and back. And when you go on an adventure, you, uh, uh, you go out, you have these, you know, this great adventure, and then you come back and you have these great stories, and you tell them to your friends, and you kind of move on with the rest of your life. But the Lord of the Rings trilogy is not an adventure. It's a quest. And the difference between an adventure and a quest is that you never really come back from a quest. Uh, you might give your life to the quest. Or if you come back physically, the quest has changed you to such a degree that you never really come back. It's funny, often when I meet people and they ask me where I grew up, I grew up at the closest hospital to where we're staying. Not grew up there, but I was born at the hospital, uh, Mission Hospital. But I'm always very quick to say, but I haven't really lived here for most of my life because after high school, I went to Santa Barbara for college and I never really came back from there. And then we moved to Scotland and I never really came back from Scotland. And then we uh, you know, had some other pit stops and then we moved to Utah and I never really came back from Utah. And uh, I'm definitely never coming back from Ladera Ranch. Uh, <laughs> all of these places have changed me, they've changed our, our family. Uh, that's what it means to have, to have a vocation. It means you're living your life. Of course, it's an adventure, but you know, in a technical sense, it's not. It's not an adventure. It's a quest. Uh, you never really come back. You are changed in the process.
commitment to discerning our God-given vocation. But the second thing that it means for us to go, and, and I got to tell you, like you're going to hate this part. <laughs> I think that answering the call to go in our cultural moment for American Christians mean, means being open to the possibility of suffering. It means, it, I'm not saying go looking for suffering because usually that's dumb. <laughs> but the problem for many of us today is that we see Christianity as a path to a happier, more fulfilled life. And so the gospel becomes not so much about the God who has made his presence known in this world and spectacularly through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But it becomes the way that I live at peace with myself uh, and become a contented person. Um, those are side effects of the gospel. It's not the gospel. The gospel is not a self-improvement project. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And here's the point. Christianity is never going to be persuasive to a culture around us that doesn't embrace the gospel as long as it's mostly about you. You know, as long as your faith is mostly about you, it's never going to be persuasive to those who disagree with you. It's never going to be persuasive if Christianity is a way to be at peace with yourself and sort of a way to look down on others. So you don't need to go looking for opportunities to suffer. I'm not saying that at all, but if you embrace your vocation and you are ready to answer questions about who you are and what you believe and why you do what you do, and if you follow God where he leads you, suffering will at times follow you or find you. You will be called to make sacrifices for the sake of the kingdom. And as you do, your faith becomes credible and beautiful to those around you. Here's the irony of living in a post-Christian culture. Your faith in Jesus will never be attractive to anyone until you demonstrate that it's not about you by your willingness to suffer. Um, do you know that the average Christian alive in the world today doesn't look very much like you. Um, the average Christian in uh, the world today does not live in North America or Europe. The average Christian, you know, if you were to take the massive numbers of Christians globally, kind of say, where's the gravitational weight of the average median Christian? That person uh, lives in either sub-Saharan Africa or Asia. Uh, it's a young person. It's probably a woman. And um, that average Christian young woman, uh, she has never been to a mega church. And she doesn't follow any Christian bloggers or celebrities online. And she doesn't hang out at Starbucks. She doesn't listen to the new Hillsong United song on Spotify. She doesn't listen to anything on Spotify. Uh, she's never heard of C.S. Lewis. But she is not afraid to suffer. Because she has met Jesus. And Jesus has radically turned her world upside down. 
And so she knows who she is, and she knows that she lives in a place that is not indifferent to her faith, but is actually hostile to it. And she knows that Jesus needs her to take the gospel wherever she goes, and so she's willing to suffer as she does that. Did you know that today there are 215 million Christians being persecuted for their faith, either by religious extremists or totalitarian governments, 215 million people. Um, I saw this video, I think I shared this on Facebook, you might have seen this, but let's just talk about China alone, okay? You know who Mike Pence is? Anybody know Mike Pence is? <laughs> okay, he's the vice president, he's not a prophet. Uh, Mike Pence, I think, was speaking at like a, some prayer gathering in, in Washington, D.C., and he's talking about religious freedom across the globe. And Mike Pence, after saying a few other things, he said this. He said, um, as China continues to persecute the Christian church, we are actually seeing the fastest growth in the Christian faith that has been seen anywhere in the, on the planet in the last 2,000 years. And then he said this, 70 years ago, when the Communist Party came into power in China, there were less than half a million Christians. And today, there are over 130 million Christians, our brothers and sisters in China. And here's the point. It's not because they all learned how to share the four spiritual laws with someone, or they went through an evangelism explosion, or uh, some sort of other evangelistic training program that taught them how to express their faith. It's because good Jesus had called them and they had a distinct sense of their vocation as a Christian as they went out into the world, and they weren't afraid to suffer. And I believe that the same thing can and will happen here as well, as comfortable Christians answer the call of God and embrace our kingdom vocations and are not afraid to suffer. Our world, too, will see that Christianity isn't a self-improvement plan. It isn't a power grab. It's about living it's about the living God coming to you and saying, I want you to know me. I want to know you. I want to bless you, and I want to bless everybody you know through you, but you have got to go. So it'd be really depressing if I just said, let us pray now. <laughs> uh, because how in the world are you going to get that to come out of you? Well, the third thing you've got to see in this passage is you need the gospel sustenance to answer the call of God and to embrace your kingdom vocation. So briefly, it's funny, this week I was at a coffee shop and I got talking to a guy sitting next to me and he was asking me, you know, what am I, I told him I was starting this new series on the life of Abraham and another guy said, oh, Father Abraham, I heard of him, he had many sons. <laughs> and I thought it's funny because he didn't have a lot of sons. <laughs> Like, that's the whole point, <laughs> is uh, he had, well, I guess he had two sons, but he really was only supposed to have one son. Uh, we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. <laughs> but the whole problem in the life of Abraham is that God has come to him and, like, he's made all these promises. You're going to be great. You're going to be a legend, Abraham, and I'm going to make you a blessing. To, uh, your, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars. 
stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore, and I'm going to make you a nation. You'll be the father of all the faithful. And Abraham's going, uh, hello, like, I don't even have a son. Uh, and I'm 75 years old, and my wife, Sarah, is barren. And uh, I think it says later she is postmenopausal anyway. And so what that means is this, that if God is going to answer the promises to Abraham, he is going to have to do something extraordinary in order to provide for Abraham. If this is going to come true at all, God is going to have to make it happen. And so what God is saying to Abraham is this, you cannot live your life with your eyes on your circumstances. You've got to live your life with faith in the Son. And that is what is going to keep you from riding the ups and downs of your circumstances. You have got to keep living as if the promises of God that there will be a son are going to come true for you. And friends, that's exactly the way it is for us. We're in the same position. If you live with your eyes on your circumstances, you'll rise and fall with them, and so you've got to live instead with faith in the son. When Isaac eventually is born, Isaac comes as this kind of precursor of Jesus. The true son. Think about Jesus. Um, Isaac points us to the true son, but when the true son finally comes, think about how Jesus lived his life. You know, he answers the call of God. Uh, he has a crystal clear sense of his vocation as he goes into the world, he knows exactly what God has called him to do, and he knows what things he cannot do because God hasn't called him to do them. He leaves his father's home. He leaves heaven, and he comes to earth. He's not afraid to suffer, and on the cross, he has no idea where he's going as he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is the one who fully and faithfully responds to the call that Abraham sort of, kind of, but not really, but kind of, <laughs> demonstrates for us. And Jesus does all of this for you. He does all of it for you. And so here's the good news, friends. You don't have to do any of this because Jesus has done it for you. And because you don't have to do any of it, you actually can do all of it. Not because you have to, but because God has in Christ, sent his Holy Spirit to give you a new heart. He changes us from the inside out by giving you a new heart. A few years ago, tragedy struck a man named Bill Connor. Uh, Bill Connor had two college-aged children, and they were on vacation in Cancun, Mexico, when these two, uh, they think somebody probably slipped something into their drink, and they discovered these two college-aged children on the bottom of the pool. And uh, they were able to save his son, but his daughter, 20-year-old Abby Connor, uh, they did everything they could, but she didn't make it. But she was an organ donor, and uh, she, her organs were, um, were harvested, seems like a crude word, but after his death, Bill Connor took up this cause of, uh, of tissue donation, and so a few years later, after his other son, who survived, 
graduated from college. A few days later, he left his home. Bill Connor left his home in Madison, Wisconsin, and he got on his bike, and he rode 2,600 miles to Fort Lauderdale, Florida, in order to raise awareness for tissue donation and organ donation. And when he got to Florida, he was greeted by a young African-American man named Lamont Jack. And Bill Connor got off his bike, and the two men hugged. And Lamont Jack pulled a stethoscope out of his back pocket and gave it to Bill Connor. And Bill Connor put it on and held it up to his Lamont Jack's chest and listened to his daughter Abby's heart beating in the chest of this other man. Friends, you have the heart of Christ beating within you. And everywhere you go, the new life that Jesus has given you beats in your chest. And what I want to tell you is that your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers who aren't Christians, they know what you believe. <laughs> but what they need to hear is the heartbeat of Jesus as it beats in your chest. Have you heard the call of God? Do you know him? Will you answer the call to go? Friends, I believe that God is going to do incredible things through us. Through this little church of ours in Orange County as we go out into the world answering his call and inviting the world around us to put the stethoscope up to your chest and listen to the heartbeat of Christ in you. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for Abraham. Thank you for his faithfulness. Thank you for his example. We thank you for uh, the way that we see not a hero of the faith who's a perfect man who perfectly obeys what you ask him to do. But in his weakness and frailty and failing, uh, he demonstrates for us what a life of faith looks like. And God, I pray that you would help us to answer the call. Just like you called Abraham to be people who know you and therefore we go out into the world with vocation, not afraid to suffer. Because you want to bless our friends, our neighbors, through us. We pray in Jesus' name.